And I was so into my sermon this morning, I forgot the offering. And uh, they didn't like that. So let's do the offering right now so I don't forget it. And uh, are you glad for your resources? Yeah, it's a really good thing to have an income. And we're praying for employment for those of you that need employment. We're praying for promotions. We're praying for pay raises. We're praying for rich uncles to include you in the will. We're praying for uh, your roof to last 10 years longer than they thought it would. Uh, Funny story, this guy named Anthony Campolo, he made a deal with God. He said, God, I'm going to give my money to missions as long as my tires last on my car. I'm just going to give it all to missions. He said they were threadbare. They, you could almost see through the tires. So he was so excited to get new tires. He preaches. And after church, the guy goes, you know, Pastor Campolo, I noticed your car's tires were bad. So while you were preaching, I put new ones on. He said, would you leave my car alone? He said, yeah, he, wanna, he don't want to give that money to missions. But uh, you guys are doing a great job around the world. Uh, g- congratulations on your work there. Uh, everyone there is giving thanks to God for your generosity. And so, God, today we return thanks for the privilege of uh, employment. We thank you for the various ways we receive our resources. We thank you for the stable economy that we're in, as uh, stable as it is. But, Lord, our stability is in you. Uh, We thank you that we trust you, for you are the one who provides for us. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging bread. We receive that in in great appreciation. Uh, Lord, as we uh, look at the budget this year, we're a little behind on income, so move us to catch up, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as you give. I like to start with a little bit of humor here, and uh, you might think very little. We'll see how you, how you roll. How many of you do statistics? Any statistics people in the house? Okay, a couple of statistic people in the house. He goes, sup, have you heard the latest stats joke? Probably. That's a statistic joke, I thought. Thought a couple of you would get that. So the electron goes to his counselor and says, I'm tired of being an electron. The counselor says, don't be so negative. (laughs) Thank you, Jeffrey. I love laughing with you, brother. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to study the Bible today. Uh, We pray that as we give reflection to becoming people of realized potential, that your Holy Spirit will speak to us. And at the end of the message, may your Holy Spirit do as he likes to do with gifts and signs and wonders and all we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Welcome to our new series called Becoming People of Realized Potential in Christ. It's one of the themes of my life ministry. I get a big kick out of people uh, reaching their full potential in Christ, uh, partly because uh, that's my life story. Uh, how many of you, everything in life was against you, but you survived? Anybody, you know, like, I, it was all against me, and I survived. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite right now is everybody, uh, not everybody, but I get asked every week, when are you going to write your book? We want to read your books that you write. Uh, I, I like that. Because when I went to ninth grade at East High, they put me in first grade penmanship. And they gave me a pencil about that big around and said, okay, this is how you make an A. This is how you make a B. And I'm going to write a few books and just send them to those guys who put me in first grade penmanship in ninth grade. This is hard on your masculinity. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, I like the fact that that uh, when I came to Anchorage, I spoke very much like you speak in Barrow. I didn't speak with the, the vernacular. I didn't speak with the intonation and style of a city kind of person. I spoke very differently. And they, I'm sure they never gave me a shot at ever being a public speaker, especially in a city audience. And uh, I thank God for that. And uh, I, went to, I went to Windler Junior High, and you registered beforehand. They said, young man, would you like to take biology or would you like to take geometry? Geometry or algebra? And I burst into tears because I had never heard of any of those three words before. And uh, now I got me a couple degrees hanging on the wall, and and uh, I'm going for a third one pretty soon called a doctorate. And uh, and uh, so you know, uh, it's fun to kind of reach out for your potential. And 
Uh, I think that uh, one of the leading lessons of the last hundred years, 1900 to 2000, uh, the American Psychological Association had a meeting on a study on what were the greatest uh, insights of the last 100 years. And the president of the APA uh, is a guy named Marty Seligman, or he was. And his report is that the number one discovery of the last 100 years is learned helplessness. And uh, there's many illustrations, but the famous one is that a dog uh, tries to get something in a box, and uh, he can't get what, that in the box. And uh, there's a lid on the box, and he can't get that out of the box. So he does that for three days. The dog tries to get out of the box uh, what he wants, but there's a lid on it. After three days, the dog has learned he can't get out of the box. And when they take the lid off the box, the dog never jumps out again. Learned helplessness. We've learned that about monkeys when they reach in and grab something in a gourd, but they've learned to not let go. So they can't get their hand out, and they would die uh, in the gourd holding on. I'm not interested really in dogs. I'm not really interested in uh, monkeys. I'm interested in you and me and asking ourselves, what degree of learned helplessness do we have? What degree of, I don't really think that I'm up to that. I, I don't really have the skill. I don't have the creativity. I don't have the ingenuity. I don't have, and we learned this helplessness. Uh, this series is designed to challenge your helplessness in all settings, especially uh, in the spiritual realm. But I'm also interested in your potential in your life because uh, you don't really have your spiritual life and another life. They're one. They're joined together. And I'm interested in you reaching your full potential. I'm interested in you. Uh, Lance Pruitt, uh, he watched the first service from Juno. Lance Pruitt, every day of his life, he was at Muldoon Assembly. We had a daycare. He was in our daycare. And we had a Christian school. He went to Christian school here. He came to Sunday school, everything, watching this little kid run around. Now to know that uh, he was voted the top in the top 40 uh, politicians in the United States under the age of 40. And he grew up right here, hanging out with the uh, likes of you and me. And I like watching people. Did anybody ever imagine Lance would be used in politics? I sure never did. It uh, never crossed my mind. But to watch God take people, we had Kelly Nicolello came down from uh, North Pole, Alaska, where he had retired from the military. He was in the fire department at the military. And many years ago, I look out on a Wednesday night, and over here on my right is this big, tall dude. And I go up. He says, hey, we're moving to Anchorage, and uh, we're going to be uh, attending Muldoon Assembly. And and uh, uh, have a job over here at the fire department. And uh, he he retired a couple what maybe years ago as the state's chief fire marshal. I like watching that progress into the areas of development that he's interested in. And when we talk about realized potential, it's super important for us to uh, get faith for our potential, to get faith for what we want. Uh, Important to me is not that you do what I want for your life. Important for me is not that you do what your mom wants for your life. What's important to me is that you do what you want for your life as it's guided by God. A guy named Dennis Waitley uh, years ago wrote a book called Ten Seeds of Greatness. It was a good book, but the foreword was even better. He said he was an F, uh, F4 pilot, I think, back in the day, maybe an F-16, but he was a pilot in the Air Force. His dad was in the Air Force. His grandfather was in the Air Force. It was just kind of the way the family rolled. They were an Air Force family. He says he's flying a mission in his jet, and all of a sudden it dawns on him. He never wanted to be a pilot. He goes, I never, I never really wanted to be a pilot. It's just my dad was a pilot. My grandfather was a pilot. I, I, you know what I want to do? I want to write books. So he gets down, he lands his plane, he goes in, he tells the general or the colonel, whoever you tell, he said, you know what, I'm retiring, I'm going to go write books. And they're all like, what are you talking about? You're a, you're a highly uh, sophisticated uh, pilot of a, everybody dreams of fire, uh, flying these incredible uh, war jets. And he said, you know, just all my life I wanted to be an author. And, and he landed his plane, he became a best-selling author because he wanted to reach his full potential in another area than where people told him he should. 
Many of you have heard this story before. It's the most glorious one that I have in my experience. Uh, my office is right over there, but before it was my office in 1983, it was Pastor Sheneman's office, and our worship pastors were Car- uh, Sherry and Casey Childers. And uh, they had albums, and, and they were cute, and they were great singers, and formal, and I mean, it was just perfect. And so we're in staff meeting, and, uh, and Casey goes, uh, uh, Pastor Shinnam and I resign. And we're all like, okay, fine, people resign all the time. Uh, why? He said, because I'm going to become a medical doctor. God's calling me into uh, research. And we all bust out laughing. Do you have a degree? Like, do you have an associate? No. Do you have a bachelor? No. And you're going to be a doctor? We all bust out laughing and cracked up. And uh, today he is the world's leading researcher in muscular dystrophy. And 100% of the dogs they've tried his gene therapy on have recovered 100%. 100% of the dogs. They haven't tried it on humans yet. But uh, I, I saw it on the news. It was on uh, Seattle News, KIRO News. And, and, and we didn't have the capacity in my office to actually see that this guitar player had a whole nother capacity. He had a whole nother, a whole nother slot that God could take him to uh, incredible ends, that God could take him to something far beyond what what we had managed. In other words, we let our staff have learned helplessness about Dr. Casey. And so uh, the first word in your notes is the Holy Spirit is inviting. And I would like to emphasize the word invitation for you because I don't believe that external pressure really helps. I don't think uh, every lady in the house who would say, I've pressured my husband to change. How's that going for you? You know what I'm saying? I don't think that, I don't think that pressuring somebody really gets the job done. I think when you receive the invitation to be all that you want to be, to be all that you think God's called you to be, then there can be some motivation. Uh, I've worked with a lot of people with alcoholism And everyone in alcoholism who somebody else thinks they should get sober, never do. But the person who comes in and says, if it kills me, I'm going to beat this thing because it's coming from inside. It's coming from maybe the work of the spirit in their life. They beat it. And uh, invitation. My friend says that a lot of churches are like used car lots. And people don't want to go to a used car lot. You go in and you you look at the car and, and then you got this... Uh, person, I was going to say scuzzy person, not all used car people are scuzzy, but uh, you got this person calling you, oh, can I have your name and address and your phone number? How much do you weigh? What's your social security number? And you're going, dude, I just want to look at a car. You know, I just wanted to look at this used car. And a lot of churches, he says, are like that used car lot. You come in and we try to, whatever makes me feel good, I try to get you to do. So if let's say people coming forward makes me feel good, I'll try to manipulate you to get you to come forward. Or or if I need you to, you know, lift your hands or whatever, and it makes me feel good. And, and you leave feeling like, you know what? That church was not there to give to me. That church was to get the response out of me that they wanted. A used car lot. He said, so I'm walking down the street in London and we come to a Rolls Royce dealership. He said, my son and I walk into the Rolls Royce dealership and, and, and they say, welcome. We are glad that you're interested in Rolls Royces. The doors are all unlocked. We'd like you to take as long as you would like, shop around, sit in all of them, start them up, enjoy the Rolls Royces. Over here is our buffet. If you would like to eat with us today, over here are our beverages. We hope that it's fine. And, uh, if you have any questions, let us know. We'd be happy to contact you if you're interested. And he said, and then they left him alone for a couple hours with the Rolls Royces. And when he talked about that, I really thought I'd like to be the kind of church that shows that God has a Rolls Royce for you. And I'm not really talking about cars. I'm talking about your life. He has like a luxury life available to you, but he's not a used car salesman. He's not going to come and try to manipulate you or trick you, but he invites you to come into this experience with him where your life becomes all that God intends for it to be. It becomes, it becomes an inviting life. 
And all of the old time people in our church had trouble with this when uh, I stopped having people raise their hands if they want to be saved. Okay, here's how it rolls. Please bow your head and close your eyes. No one looking around. Please raise your hand. Now stand. Now come forward. It's beautiful. But it's also not quite that inviting. And so when we went to the uh, system of saying, if you would like to invite Jesus into your heart, if you are accepting that invitation, come and talk to us or put, I said yes on the cross or come into the prayer room and say, I said yes to make it more invitational to where you feel I'm invited. This is actually biblical out of Revelation where it says things like, come everyone who is thirsty. You're invited to eat food you didn't pay for. You're invited to drink beverages that you didn't provide. Oh, another verse in Psalms, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How many of you know when you get a taste that the Lord is good, you don't need a scuzzy pastor trying to twist your arm. You just know how good God is. You see what I'm saying? And uh, so this idea of becoming people of realized potential, I've done quite a few business trainings around the country with various companies. I start with a little card and I say, on a scale of one to 10, how much are you bringing of your capacity to this company? How much of your capacity does this company release in your job? And these are always high-level people, uh, generally the executives of the company. I've done it maybe 10 times around, around the nation, and I have never got a number above five. That means that people are leaving at least half of their capacity at home and not bringing it to the workforce. They, 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 they see they could help, but maybe the top doesn't want help, or maybe there's politics in the workplace, and maybe there's, uh, uh, relational issues in the workplace. And so people actually go to work and function at a five when they're gifted at a ten. And they do that their whole life. And I have a suggestion that might be a cause of depression. That might be a cause of, of frustration. Uh, uh, I'll tell one Daniel story. Daniel was really frustrated as a six-year-old. And uh, he's my son, Daniel, really frustrated as a six-year-old. And and nothing we could do. He was uh, kind of rambunctious and energetic. And so we took him to the school. They tested Daniel. And afterwards, uh, we're just hanging out. And they said, yeah, we've got a couple questions for you guys. What kind of books are you reading to Daniel? We said, uh, you know, six-year-old books, Sea Spot Run or, you know, whatever, Little Chronicles of Narnia or whatever. We're reading that. They said, that's part of the problem. He's at an 11th grade level. And you're under, you are, here's the level, and you're undershooting, and he's going nuts. Bring that level up. So we brought it up. His favorite would be, uh, would be uh, J.R. Tolkien. And he's about nine years old. He said, Dad, I know everything about Tolkien. I said, yeah, that's what happens when you're nine. You think you know everything. So I found a college exam on Tolkien from Columbia University, a college exam, final exam on Tolkien. My nine-year-old got 100% correct because mom and dad didn't see him at the place where he could actually function in that way. I have no idea why a, a, a good grade on Tolkien is worth anything in the real world. But the point is, uh, when we step up and we realize our potential, uh, Elisa Peretti was a friend of ours, a friend of mine at college, and she never did anything uh, public. She just did her schoolwork and went back to her room. And, and one day she thought, you know what, I'm going to try singing. I think I'll just try singing. So Lisa Peretti tried singing, and she got the part. And she tried singing, and she got the part. She tried singing, and she got the part. And last year, she had the lead role in Broadway on The Phantom of the Opera. But all through college, up till she was 20-something, she never saw herself as a singer, never, never crossed her mind that she had the potential for that. And so today, if God enables me, I'd like to just pop the top off of your learned helplessness. I'd like to let you just kind of uh, get the idea that that if God and you are, are kind of dialed in on this, that it's, it's plausible. It's actually possible. My phrase is becoming people of realized potential. So let's start with the word potential. Potential is those realities existing in possibility. 
this is a really fun thing because when you have a, does it exist? Yes, it exists. But it isn't concrete yet. It exists in the realm of possibilities. And so learning that things exist that aren't yet manifested is really important. Uh, one guy was preaching a sermon. This really helped me a lot. He said that when David was uh, out guarding the sheep, they tried all the other children and no, you're not the king. You're not the king. You're not the king. You're not the king. Finally, David, you're the king and you're a shepherd boy. He said, this is the line that got in my soul. He said, he was a shepherd boy, but Samuel anointed the king that was inside that David didn't even know was there yet. So David was the king, but he couldn't see it yet. He was still a shepherd boy, a harp player, a bear killer, a, a, a specialist with the slingshot. But, but God, through Samuel, opened his understanding to see that, in fact, there are possibilities. They exist. The next part is capable of developing into actuality. For example, is there, does healing exist? Thank you. Does healing exist? Yes. How do we make it an actuality? Uh, is God uh, well able to meet the need that you have in your life? Yes. How do you make it an actuality? And so the idea of potential is existing in possibility and developing into actuality. The word realized is to bring into concrete existence. Praise God. To bring into concrete existence. Uh, here's one that's funny. I love that girl, man. I'm going to marry that girl. The problem is she doesn't like you. And, uh, so you got this whole potential thing rolling around in your head, but you can't bring it into concrete reality. Uh, we talk about, uh, how many of you said I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30, you're 92 and you aren't, you couldn't bring it into concrete reality. Uh, and so we step back and we say, as we study the word of the Lord, that, He's inviting us. It's an invitation to you and me to take those things that exist in possibility and to make them into concrete existence. I want to give a little talk about people for a moment. Just for fun, is people singular or plural? How many think it's plural? People, plural. How many think it's singular? Yeah, it's both. And uh, that's why I'm using it becoming people of realized potential. So the singular of people is person. The singular of people is person. But when people represents a group, like here uh, in your notes, American people are filled with faith. That's plural. In America, we find a people of faith that's singular. And so it's both uh, when you have uh, people, the singular is person. When you have people that represent a group of people, what is plural of people? Peoples. You add an S on the end. And uh, people would say, you don't say the word peoples. Yeah, you do. For example, today, we are Malden Community Assembly. We are one people. We are one people. We have uh, Inupiat, Yupik, we have the Inupiat people, the Yupik people, the Clinket people, the Haida people, the Athabascan people, uh, we have the Denina people, we have all the, we are a group of peoples. So when I say we are going to become people of realized potential, I mean that there is an interaction between the individual and the group, and an interaction between the group and the individual. You see it there, potential existing in possibility as a group, existing in possibility as a person. So here you are as a person, and out of one to ten, you're a nine. And you have great potential. You're a nine. You have maximized your potential out of nine. However, here's the group, and the group is filled with twos and threes. You're going to find yourself struggling to be a nine if your group is a two or a three. In fact, probably you'll quit the group. It just gets too frustrating. Now, every once in a while, you have a bright superstar that's a nine that can move the whole group up maybe to an eight or a nine. But generally speaking, the, the individual is limited by a group. If we change it, 
And we say, no, no, you're a, thir- you're a four, but the group is a six. You will most likely find yourself moving from a four to a six because the majority of the people are a six and they're able to bring you up and you play better. On the same side, we go the other way. You say, you know what? Here I am as an individual and I'm a, I'm a two and my group is a nine. You find here the individual struggles. Here the group struggles. The group is just like, you know what? This is really hard for me. And uh, a funny, uh, I think it's funny, joke about kind of this idea is the guy home, comes home late from playing golf. And his wife goes, you're late again from golf. He goes, well, I'm sorry I'm late, but my buddy had a heart attack. Bob had a heart attack. She goes, I, okay, so Bob had a heart attack. Why does it take you three hours to get home? He goes, hit the ball, drag Bob. Hit the ball, drag Bob. In this, in this, the group is hitting the ball and dragging you. Are any of you, don't raise your hands, are any of you on work teams, you're hitting the ball, but you got this guy or gal on your team, and, uh, and you, it's just really hard to, to, to drag them along. They're, they just don't want to, they don't understand that people and peoples are important in maximizing human potential for the glory of God. We have this, we're dealing with this as a church. I'm looking across our audience today, and most of you are sober. And uh, congratulations for being sober today. For many of you, it's not a problem. However, right down the street, we have a headquarters of inebriation called the bus stop. And I want those brothers at the bus stop to feel comfortable to come here. And I want them to be able to find Christ. And I want them to be set free and be sober-minded for the rest of their life. At the same time, I don't, I don't want... I want them to come up to our number. I don't want us to go down to their number. I don't want all of you going, hey, great idea. I learned that from my buddy Kent brought into church. Let's all get drunk. You know, this is not, this is not the intent. In realizing your full potential, the individual is greatly impacted by the group. I think the most spectacular running back in the NFL I have ever seen in my lifetime, a lot of you are too young was Barry Sanders. Anybody see Barry Sanders play? Uh, man, he was the most spectacular running back, in my opinion, in the history of the world. He had the most seasons, 1,100 1, yards or more. Most consecutive seasons, 1,100 yards or more. Most seasons of 1,300 yards. Most seasons of 1,400 yards. Most consecutive seasons of 1,400 or more yards. Most consecutive seasons of 1,500 more yards. Uh, NFL record, 25 games. He rushed for 150 yards or more. 46 games in which Sanders had 150 yards yards from scrimmage or more, 15 career touchdown runs, 50 yards or more, all NFL records. He never won the Super Bowl because of the team he was on. And so the team actually has something to do with your capacity or the group. At the same time that the individual is impacted by the group, the group is impacted by the individual's. And so in this book that I'm reading called uh, Big Potential, I came up with this, uh, this is just a spectacular story from the way I like stories anyways. When dusk slowly crept upon a mangrove forest lining a river deep in a jungle in Southeast Asia, a biologist far from his home in Washington state looked out over the lush alien landscape lining the snake infested waters. While drifting slowly in his boat, Professor Hugh Smith surely heard the calls of the nocturnal creatures uncoiling from their dens and taking flight from their nests and beginning their nightly hunts. I can envision how the water must have shimmered under the light from the stars, unspoiled by the light pollution that existed in the remote cities. What happened next on that humid day in 1935 is part of recorded academic history. Smith looked up at one of the mangrove trees and suddenly the entire canopy glowed as if lightning bolt had shot out from the tree instead of striking it. Then all went dark, leaving a burned image on his vision. Then lightning, as it sometimes does, struck twice. The entire tree glowed again, then went entirely dark again, twice in three seconds. Then in a reality-bending moment, all the trees along the riverbank suddenly glowed in unison, 
every tree on one side of the river for a thousand feet was flashing and going dark at exactly the same time. Once his capacity for mental reasoning returned, he realized that the trees were not in fact glowing, rather they were covered with a critical number of bioluminescent lightning bugs, all illuminating at the exact same time. Upon returning home, Dr. Smith wrote up a journal article on his discovery of the synchronous lightning bugs. It seemed too good to be true, like something out of a storybook. I'm sadly unsurprised by the next part of the story. No one believed him. Biologists ridiculed this account, calling it fabricated. Why would male fireflies glow in unison, which would only decrease their chances of distinguishing themselves to potential mates? Mathematicians were equally skeptical. How could order come from chaos in nature without a leader to direct it? An entomologist asked how millions of fireflies could see enough other fireflies to create the exact same pattern, giving the limited visibility in the mangrove forest. It was physically, mathematically, and biologically impossible, it seemed. Yet it wasn't. Thanks to modern science, we now know how and why. Turns out that this puzzling behavior actually serves a purpose for the fireflies. As published recently in the prestigious journal Science, researchers Moisef and Copeland found that when lightning bugs light up at random times, the likelihood of a female responding to a male in the deep dark recesses of a mangrove forest is 3%. But when the lightning bugs light up together, the likelihood of females responding is 82%. Listen to his conclusion. The success rate increased by 79 percentage points when flashing as an interconnected community rather than as individuals. What is your interconnected community where you get a 79% return on your efforts? 79 percent. My talks the next several weeks will be about placement and position. I know you want to get over learned helplessness. I know you want to be all that God intends for you to be. Are you positioned for that? Are you in a spot in your life? Are you, are you postured to actually uh, grab a hold of the opportunities that life or God may bring to you. And so I ask you about the positioning of your life in the things of God. How do you position your life? I tell this story regularly. Uh, a man had uh, incurable cancer at my friend's church, Joe in Cedar Park. And he felt that uh, he had only a few months to live. I don't know the exact details on that. But he said, Pastor, I think the Lord laid on my heart to come to church every day and receive Holy Communion. And uh, I'm either going to receive Holy Communion and go out of this world, the most communionized AG guy, or I'm going to go out of this, or I'm going to be healed. And believe it or not, about the 40th day of his everyday Holy Communion, he received the word, there's not a drop of cell of cancer remaining in his body. I have a question. What if he didn't position himself every day in communion? What if, he didn't, what if he didn't take action on that thing that God talked about in positioning himself for his full potential? Position matters in car racing. Maybe I got to go to one NASCAR race in my life. I loved it very much. The owner of the race, uh, Frank Harrison, Coca-Cola Bottling Company, a friend of mine. I asked him, I said, hey, do you sponsor a car? He goes, yeah, we sponsor a lot of cars. We own the race. I'm thinking, when you're rich, you own like the whole race. You know, I'm not used to that. So I go to the NASCAR race, but it was a lot of fun. Anyways, Richard Petty holds the record 61 times. He won the race from 123 pole positions with an average of 49.6. So if you could get the right position in NASCAR and you were Richard Petty, 49.6% of the time, you're going to win that race. And so 
I don't know the record. I couldn't find it. How many times Richard Petty won from the back position? How many times he won from the middle position? But positioning in auto racing, positioning in a lot of things really matters. And I see two kinds of positioning in the Bible that we'll discover in depth later. Number one is that positioning that's action taken by God. And God just positioned you. And you're like, I don't want to do this. I I don't like it. I'm not used to it. You're ruining my life. And all of a sudden you find out God positioned you for something incredible that he wanted to do. The second kind of positioning is the one where you do it yourself only to find out that God was behind it all the time. You just, you just did that yourself and then you find out that it was God's plan the whole experience. I choose Joseph for the first one. In Genesis 37 through 50, we see Joseph not really wanting his life. Uh, so here's his life. We'll go in depth later. His life. His brothers hate him because God gave him a dream. And uh, here's, here's a great lesson. Be very careful who you tell your dream to and how you tell it. You know, hey, bro, I had a dream and all you all are bowing down to me. Oh, really? Throw him in the pit. Take his coat, kill an animal, pour blood over it. Go tell dad Joseph died by a wild animal. Sell him into slavery. So now he's in a pit in slavery in Egypt. He gets a pretty good job. He's like a guy of high capacity. He gets a pretty good job. And evidently he was handsome or Potiphar's wife was blind. I don't know which the case was, but he's accused of a sex crime that he didn't do. 14 years in jail for a crime he didn't do. 14 years in jail for a crime he didn't do. But in the end, God was positioning him the whole time to save all of Israel. It's like, God, this positioning thing is not what I wanted. I I didn't want to have this disease. I I didn't want that divorce. I I didn't want that uh, have to move to Alaska. I didn't want that that position. You have me in God. I didn't want it. And the message of Joseph in this thing is that when God positions you in new places and new challenges and new opportunities, if you position yourself properly in these places, God is going to come through in a great way on your behalf. Zacchaeus is the other guy I want to use today. He's like, God didn't do this to Zacchaeus. He was short. And he's trying to see Jesus and all these tall people, Chris Roebuck, are in front of him. And they can't see through him. So uh, you can't get over him. Anyways, and, uh, and so what does he do? He goes, I got an idea. Jesus is going that way. I'm going to run down that way. and I'm going to climb up in the sycamore tree. I don't know if this is accurate, but I've been to Jericho. And the tree, they say, is still there. Uh, they put a camera up inside. The tree is well over 2,000 years old. It very well could be that sycamore tree. But this is Zacchaeus, and he's saying, you know what? This isn't, I don't even think he had it in mind. I just think he wanted to see Jesus, and it was like an impulse. And he just runs over there. He climbs up this tree, and he's sitting there in this tree, and Jesus comes by and notices him and gives him this incredible word of encouragement. You know what, Zacchaeus? Come down from that tree, and I can't, God. I'm not a very good guy. I'm a chief tax collector. I've ripped off millions of dollars from a lot of people. I, I'm stuck in this tree, and Jesus has come down. I'm going to your house for dinner. And then after an encounter at dinner with Jesus, Zacchaeus goes and repays everybody three, four, five times what he took in the first place. It's the most glorious change in a human life you can imagine because Zacchaeus positioned himself in the tree. And so when we take a look at realizing our full potential, we ask God to help us with position. How do I go to the place you want me to go to? Uh, a silly illustration. You want to be the CEO of ConocoPhillips. Well, you ought to get a job at ConocoPhillips. It's very rare they're going to hire you from Holiday Gas Station to be the CEO of ConocoPhillips. You need you, you position yourself. Uh, you position yourself around people that uh, I don't go. I'll go there later. Here's the here's Psalm ninety two, our text, and I'll move toward a close. These are four positionings that I think are valid. I have a bunch more. We'll go with four today. Number one, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. 
You want to be positioned in righteousness. Positioned in righteousness. Every major leadership training I'm aware of in the world today all talk about character in the workplace. They're done with these cool leaders that are corrupt. They're done. By the way, last year, uh, not last year, the year before last, 2017, the number one prayer request, I keep track, the number one prayer request to me is, Pastor, pray for me. My boss wants me to violate my conscience. They, they ask me to falsify a document or they ask me to stay there in a meeting when I'm not. They ask me to lie for them. Every, the, the whole corpus of literature understands that the only way to flourish, the only way to be like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon is to position yourself in righteousness. And this is all kinds of righteousness. It's not... Uh, uh, I was looking at the top uh, 10 quarterbacks that are uh, off the scene in the NFL. And uh, about three of these incredible athletes are off the scene because of alcoholism. They had, they, according to the article, they had the best arm, they had the best accuracy, but they didn't have the character to back up the gifting. And uh, that's one of the sad events. Who's the greatest basketball player who ever lived? Michael Jordan, no, probably not. Probably a guy named Lynn Bias. Lynn Bias. Anybody know Lynn Bias? Why? Because on he was a Christian man, and they considered him to be the best basketball player to ever play the game out of college. He went to his party, and he snorted a line of coke, and it killed him on his signing bonus party night. And so you... You say, well, I'm a Christian ball player. I can just have this one event of unrighteousness. It's my signing bonus. Let's say you got 10 million signing bonus. A buddy of mine, uh, his, uh, a buddy of mine's son is a Wells Fargo agent in Seattle and his clients are Seattle Seahawks. And the one guy they told me about, he gets $68,000 a week. That's his paycheck that he deposits in Wells Fargo. $68,000 a week. All of that can be for nothing without being planted in righteousness. And so you make up your mind, I'm going to plant myself in righteousness. Number two, it says they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. You need to position yourself in the house of God or in the terms of Psalm 92, in the house of the Lord. People, uh, over time, we have a terrible thing that's happened in the American culture, in my estimation. It came out maybe about 70 years ago. The church is not a building or a place. The church is the people of God. It sounds so nice and so beautiful. But Christians by the millions in America are living below their full capacity in Christ because they aren't anchored in the church. They aren't anchored in the church. I unashamedly am a churchman. I've given my life to church and particularly this one. I'm 35 years and six months into this church, giving every moment of every day uh, within reason to this church. But I also gave everything to my wife, Paula. And so I think I'm on good ground because Paul says in Ephesians, can't love Paula. And I do. I give everything for my wife, Paula, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And so people, by the millions in America, you know the average person goes to Malden Assembly? Anybody know? How often is the average person at Malden Assembly? Once every three weeks. It takes three weeks of a sermon for everybody to hear it. And, uh, and when you look at it, you think, you know what? I don't, I don't need to be, I don't need to be positioned in the body of Christ. I, uh, I don't need to be anchored in the, in the group. The Bible teaches otherwise in Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider how to stir one another on to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I thought of this. Am I a pastor? Because I love the church, or do I love the church because I'm a pastor? Well, I'm a pastor. I guess I better love this church thing. What the joke in pastoral circles is he loves to preach, but he hates people. Yeah. 
No, in my life, I became a pastor because I love this. I love the church. And uh, whatever it is you're like. So uh, I was talking to Dan McElrath between services. And uh, uh, let's take a music evangelist. A music evangelist is never in their home church. They're at another church every weekend. But they have an authority, a headship, a covering in a local church. So every guest we have, I promise you this. Every guest that stands here to preach, I call their pastor. I say, hey, you want the pulpit? Are you like, are you, like you, uh, 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 you want the pulpit? Is this person part of your church? Yeah, they're in our church. They're never here because they're always out ministering. But, but they're part, they're under our covering. Everything's good. Good. Then you have the guy who goes, uh, uh, this guy is a very famous singer. And uh, he came up here. And I said, uh, we said, can we call your pastor? He said, I don't have one. I'm not doing that church thing anymore. It's not whether you're there. It's whether you're committed and connected in the house of the Lord. And why? Because people have a way of iron sharpening iron. Uh, uh, Have you ever seen a minister that doesn't interact with elders? And before you know it, the minister is saying the craziest things you could ever imagine. Uh, One guy, uh, uh, he wasn't at our church, he was in Anchorage. He said, and... uh, and so uh, uh, I'm special to God. He said, every morning when I wake up, I look in the mirror and I see God. Like, no, that needs to be corrected. When you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror, you see you. You're not God, right? But a church helps bring that kind of polishing to you. The, uh, a church does that kind of work in your life. And, and so the fact is to position yourself in the ministry of the house of the Lord. Number three, they still bear fruit in old age. Position to bear fruit. Say, you know, I'm going to bear fruit. This is something I'm going to do. Let me tell you my favorite bearing fruit story uh, in in my life. Many of you have heard it before. Uh, I go to my grandpa's funeral. He dies. And uh, I go to my grandpa's funeral. And it's a nice funeral. Maybe 70 people there, 80 people. I'm not exactly sure. And uh, this old guy comes walking down the aisle with his walker. What's your name? My name's Kent. You Katie's grandson? Yep, that's my grandpa. The one in Alaska. Yeah, I'm the Kent from Alaska. The one who had kidney failure when you were three years old. That's me. The one that was going to die. That's me. Put her there. I've prayed for you every day of your life. You say, Kent, I'm just stuck on this walker. And you can bear fruit. There's fruit with a walker. There's fruit if you're 20 and a famous athlete. There's fruit if you are filled with the joy of the Lord. There's fruit if you're going through life's darkest valley. There is fruit. Listen to the word of the Lord. They are ever full of sap and the tree is always green. When you say, I'm going to position myself for fruit bearing. On my last day, I pray this regularly, may my last day on earth be very fruitful for the Lord. Number four, to declare that the Lord is upright. Position yourself in declaring the Lord. Position yourself in declaring the Lord. This guy, he didn't, he didn't really want to like show that he was a Christian. He worked in a steel mill in Pittsburgh. He didn't really want to show that he was a Christian, so he just kind of started talking like the guys talk, drinking like the guys drink, uh, just kind of like fitting in. Just uh, He didn't want to stand out. He, didn't, he, he wasn't interested in declaring the Lord, and he quit praying over his meals when he's with the guys. And they're at work one day, and that you know how that those big buckets of hot uh, melted iron go across those big conveyor belts over to where they go? Well, it broke, and it fell. And it was starting to burn two of his co-workers' feet. And he was talking to the pastor. And he said, Pastor, you know what? I was stuck. I didn't know what to do. And he said, well, why didn't you pray for him? Why didn't you minister to him? He said, Pastor, because my life invalidated my ministry. You know... If you're, if you're a steel worker and you're getting pressure to talk, I, I tied steel for a while. Believe it or not, this little preacher dude up here tied steel. And anybody here tie steel? Nobody. Good. They are the filthiest humans on the planet as a general rule. I mean unbearable wickedness. 
The language was unfathomable. They had, they had wickedness I had never heard of. I mean, unbelievable. And I could become like them. Or I can say, God, you've positioned me with these uh, steel-tying guys, and I'm asking that you'd help me declare the name of the Lord into this. Positioned to declare the name of the Lord. In closing, I have two things I'd like you to think about. If lightning bugs increase at 79% through interconnected community, will you commit to interconnected community? How many of you, that's easy? Interconnected community is a piece of cake for you, a couple of you. Some of you, it's really hard. We have a lady who comes to church here, every, not every Sunday, but regularly. She comes late and she leaves early. She's a very good friend of mine. She goes, Pastor, hope you don't mind. But I'm really scared of all those people. But I like the word of God. So I just slip in late and I slip out early so I don't have to shake hands and get to share names and I don't have to do all this kind of stuff together. And you know what? There, there's, there's interconnected community for shy people. There's interconnected community for people that, that maybe can't get out of your house. There's interconnected community for all of us. And I'm venturing a higher rate than 79% for Christians who are in interconnected community. I think it's much higher success rate than 79%. And then secondly, when you know that position is important in auto racing... Will you say, if it's important in auto racing, it's probably more important for my own life to position me. So God, if it's against my will, position me. Lord, if it's just me being Zacchaeus, I want to get where God's going. I got to get where he's headed. I got to get where Jesus is. Lord, help me to follow that. I want to be positioned so that I blow the lid off of learned helplessness. And become a person of fully realized potential. What we're going to do is we're going to sing. I'd like in a moment for everybody to stand. And if you would go and take communion and get the bread and the cup. And then we're going to have interconnected communities. I'd like for all just a bunch of small groups here to kind of pray together for a little while. And receive Holy Communion together. And let's put into practice the interconnected community that God has provided for us. And while you do... I want you to say, Lord, I'm practicing hearing from you. And let's see if the Holy Spirit gives you some words for each other. All right? If this freaks you out and you're like not into that, that's okay. You don't have to do it. But if you're all fine with it, let's roll. God bless you. Let's stand and sing.